1: On episode 200. Hey, my riches. And first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for being in this journey with me. You are the reason and the drive behind this podcast. And I am grateful to any one of you. Before I start this special episode, I want to talk again about what I recently mentioned a lot. And this is that the number one struggle most entrepreneurs say they struggle with is getting more clients, having more customers. So I created, especially for you, a free training, free masterclass about seven free practical ways. To get more customers and achieve ongoing growing customer base and revenue. Go to getcustomerswebinar.com getcustomerswebinar.com and check it out. I believe you would love it. And now episode two hundred The Secrets Behind Entrepreneurial Marketing Success. My podcast Rich or Miss for Entrepreneurs reached its 200th episode and as part of the celebration I decided to change its title to Rich or Miss Entrepreneurial Marketing Success and today I want to share with you three secrets behind this success. The first secret is your big idea of what you are one of a kind of. As I see it The power and beauty of entrepreneurship is that it allows you to share or create what you are one of a kind of, meaning the best at. That's what entrepreneurs should focus on. I'm aware that many people choose to enter the entrepreneurial world to leave their 9-to-5 jobs or to make more money, and these are good reasons. Not every entrepreneur wants to change the world or make an impact. However, once you've decided to become an entrepreneur, your chance to make an impact on more people and move the needle is significantly higher if you focus on your unique powerful abilities. I believe entrepreneurship is changing the world, not only because it can create technological or behavioral revolutions, but also because it enables entrepreneurs to choose to do what they are the best at, and that means less mediocrity and much more greatness in our world. What any entrepreneur should look for while deciding about his or her professional direction isn't only where they can make a living, make more money, or determine the leading trends today although these are good and important parameters as part of this decision. Entrepreneurs should start to look for their professional direction after answering the question, what am I one of a kind of? Meaning, what will I be outstanding in doing? The answer to this question lies in the meeting point between what you are best at doing and what you most like to do that will also be the direction when you have the best chances to achieve significant success. Once you've found what you are one of a kind of, you should find what product or service you should create or offer. One that answers a true need and brings value to a significant number of people or businesses. My first guest, Blake Jamieson, is a fantastic example of an entrepreneur that is one of a kind at what he does. And he literally created a new market category that fit his talent. Black Jameson, hey, what a great pleasure to have you here.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: It's so great that you are here. And I already told you that I'm so excited towards this interview. I believe it's gonna be different than most interviews or most guests that I had at the show until today because I saw what you are doing. Awesome. So it's great having you. Thanks. I just shared with our listeners what you've done until now. And I would like to ask you to share with us what are you doing and most passionate about today and where are you heading?
0: Sure. So I am a portrait artist located in New York City and I've had an interesting kind of roller coaster of a journey up until this point. But what I do right now is I paint portraits for professional athletes. Primarily, I work in the NFL, although I do work with other athletes that play soccer, lacrosse, wrestling, Hmm. hockey, uh, all types of athletes. And I've kind of carved out this niche for me where an athlete or maybe the spouse or the girlfriend of an athlete is looking for a painting that kind of captures special sports moment for them, I'm oftentimes the person that they turn to, and I'm very fortunate to work with awesome people and get to paint every single day, which I love.
1: Which is great. I never heard in this podcast an entrepreneur that paints portraits of athletes. Yeah. But I want you to tell me a bit about this roller coaster sure. that you just talked about. So
0: I grew up in a very creative household. I was always encouraged to paint or draw or do photography, all of those things I love doing. However, I kind of have convinced myself from a young age that art was a starving artist, and it was not necessarily a viable career path. So... (laughs) instead of doing actually what my parents encouraged that I do which was studying art in college I decided to study economics and tech what I thought was the safe route at the time and parlay that into a career in marketing so when I graduated college it was when oh. social media marketing was become was just starting to become an actual respected career and I was able to get in a very you know ground level for some pretty reputable companies and work my way through several different companies and then I spun off and started working for myself as a freelancer which allowed me to work with even more companies and ultimately it was on my 30th birthday that I decided that I was tired working for someone else's dream and I wanted to follow my own dreams and realized also at that time that you know maybe my parents were right all along.
1: (laughs) Okay and then how did you come to Painting athletes.
0: Sure. Okay, great. So I'm very grateful. My background in marketing and understanding specifically digital marketing and having the experience marketing a very, very wide range of products. I understood how social selling worked and how it was really a relationship mm-hmm. building business. And because of my experience in digital marketing, I had built up not a huge but a moderate following of of friends and family and colleagues and people I met along the way. And so when I first decided, okay, I'm going to start painting, I knew that I had to specialize and I had to come up with a specific Hmm. niche. I was never the artist that says, well, I'm just going to paint whatever I feel like painting, which is fine. If someone wants to do that, that's no problem. But I'm also a marketer and a businessman. And so I decided I'm going to paint a specific thing for a specific subset of people. And because of my network at the time, I decided that I was going to paint for Offices, okay. basically, for tech companies, because those were all everything. Everything in my rolodex mm. was tech companies, and so I was going to my existing contacts.
1: I must ask something. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Did
1: you really have a rolodex?
0: Oh, like, uh, no. I had my my phone uh, contact list. Okay. When I when I did some marketing and sales before, I did have a physical rolodex. <laughs> but I started going to those people and saying, I'm an artist. I paint office art basically, for tech companies, because that, that was my contact list. And so what that ended up like turning into is I was painting a lot of portraits of people like Steve Jobs, or very Vaynerchuk, or different, you know, iconic mm-hmm. tech founders, not necessarily for them at the time, but for other people who aspired to be like them and put a picture of Steve Jobs in their office, really? or, you know, a mo- some kind of motivational quote. And I did that for, I think it was about two years. And that was going well, I I had my niche carved out, and I was gaining reputation as one of the leaders in that space. And it was really kind of lucky coincidence that I met this guy while I was delivering art to a different client in Las Vegas. I met someone who had previously played in the NFL professional football, and was now a manager of existing players that play in the NFL, and he really liked my art. And he said, man, office art's really cool, but what if you did some paintings for some of my clients, and then I'll make yeah. sure that they're going to post about it on social media, they're going to promote you. I can't, like, I would love to give this to them as a gift. So it was free from from the beginning. The expectation was this would be unpaid work, but it could potentially lead to more work. And I've always, I always, um, what's the right word? I gravitate towards that those type of opportunities. I'm never afraid. Free and and at that time, unfortunately, I was free and and I did it. And as soon as I painted for a few athletes, and then I realized that their teammates saw it. And by nature, they're very very competitive Mm -hmm. people. And so when one guy buys a painting, or not even when one guy has a painting, the next guy wants a bigger painting. They also have the you know disposable income to pay for it, and they have much bigger social media followings to promote my Mm -hmm. work than most. Te- startup tech companies that I was working for. Hmm. So it just made sense. And so I pivoted the business. I guess it was two and a half, three years ago now. And at this point in my career, I've painted, I think, more professional athletes than almost anybody else in my space.
1: Wow. Um, two things. First of all, you're talking about your space. And to me, it looks like quite a unique space, isn't it?
0: Yes and no. I don't have a lot of competitors who focus exclusively on the niche of professional athletes. However, most portrait artists that I know at least have painted athletes, whether or not it's for the athlete themselves, because athletes in like today's culture are so uh, you know, Im- immortalized or yeah. worshiped that as a portrait artist, it's very common that a portrait artist will paint the maybe athlete that plays for the local city that they live in that's like the hero of the city because it's good publicity because other people recognize Hmm. that person and they like it. So there are a ton of people that paint athletes. There are definitely a lot fewer people who specialize in painting athletes.
1: Which I think you found, uh, as you said, unfortunately most entrepreneurs, and this is a podcast for entrepreneurs, don't know what focusing is at all, and definitely not focusing in customers. So I really think it's a unique niche to start with. And the second question is, do you like to watch NFL at all?
0: I do, although I watch it a lot more now that I paint for so many. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so when I, I never played football growing up. I played other sports. I was very into sports. I played soccer, wrestling, and lacrosse. Wow. My parents would never let me play football, and that didn't really bother me as a kid. But because of that, I wasn't really drawn to watching it. As soon as I started painting, which started in the NFL, I started saying to myself, okay, well, I need to know what's going on in the sport. And, you know, how not necessarily the rules, but like understanding the dynamics of the NFL. So I started watching it. And now, I mean, I watch it every week during the season, I'm always watching it primarily to keep up (laughs) with my clients so that I can say, you know, I could text one of my collectors and say, hey, great game. Uh, If he has a great game, (laughs) yeah. So now I watch football. I play fantasy football for the same reason, which helps me kind of track players across many different teams. But it wasn't football specifically wasn't something that I was grew up watching necessarily.
1: Hmm. I really love it. I think it's such a unique. I think you live in it, so it sounds like you don't see how unique. What you do is that It is. And I do want to ask you, what would be your best advice to any entrepreneur out there, whatever they do?
0: Sure. So I guess it's twofold. Hmm. Going back to the story about how I thought that I was taking the safe path, working in marketing instead of doing something that I really cared about. I know that it's kind of cliche and generic advice to say, follow your passions, but I will. Tell anyone that's listening that if you're actually doing things that you really do enjoy and like, then it just doesn't feel like work. That's right. And so as an entrepreneur, maybe if you're trying to solve problems, and I've heard other people say this, I can't take credit, but try to scratch your own itch. So try to solve a problem that was your own problem. Hmm. Don't just try and solve a problem that someone else says, oh, there's a lot of money in this problem. Instead, do something to be like, oh, you know, I grew up wishing there was a better App that did XYZ, then that's the one that you should make because it should be something that you want to use and you want to do every single day rather than getting into a grind just trying to chase a paycheck or maybe a big exit if you want to sell your company. And I know that people could say, well, I didn't grow up loving and being passionate about football, which is true, but I've found a way to do things that I am passionate about, which is creating and painting every single day and finance the lifestyle that I want to live while not compromising my own dreams and goals and ambitions, which I think is super important. Hmm. On the other side of things, I think that working for free, which is really what kind of led me to, not only to the athletes, but even when I started with the tech companies, it's not like when I transitioned and said, okay, I'm a marketer, and then the next day, okay, I'm a painter. It's not like the next day people were saying, okay, you're a painter, let me pay you to paint something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I literally went to companies and said, hey, I have decided to leave marketing, I wanna start painting, and I wanna focus on art for offices. I made this really cool painting of Steve Jobs. Can I hang it in your office and take some photos? And so I've worked for free so many times more than most people realize when they only see what social media shows, looking like I sold work after work after work. The reality is they're not all sold. Some of them are still, to this day, they're just free gifts because I want exposure and I want to continue to do what I love to do. So work for free is the other piece of advice.
1: I love that. I love that. And uh, I must say that you have the video and it looks like you are painting so fast and so many people. Mm -hmm. So it must be a fantastic journey meeting (laughs) so many people in such a way. Yep. Hmm. Yep.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I produce a lot of work. I don't have a very long attention span. Some artists will work on the same thing for months. I've never, with the exception of a few very, very, very rare cases, I've never worked on a single piece of art for longer than one week (laughs) because I like to be always changing, always doing new things, always trying new ideas. And so people might see me painting one thing, two thing, three thing, four thing, five thing. But the reality of the breakdown is one third of those things I'm painting for free still to this day. I continue to myself and do my business development. And I have a whole kind of business model carved out. I have it. It's all scheduled to say, okay, this part of time is free work. Sometimes it's for charity auctions. Sometimes it's a strategic gift for someone who wants to post about me on social media uh, the another third of the work is actual paid commissions where someone comes to me and says, I want a painting of myself or of my boyfriend or of my dog. How much will it cost? And I and I tell them, and that's very straightforward. It's very transactional. And then the other third of work is things that I'm painting just because I feel like painting hmm. and I don't want to have any rules. And I think that that part is very important as an artist, even myself being very commercialized and feeling like art is a business, I still carve out about 30% of my time to do things that are, I don't really care if they sell, I still, I'll put them for sale, and if they do, that's fantastic. But sometimes my best work comes out of that, because it's coming out of something that doesn't have any rules, and there's no box that I'm in, it's just me doing whatever creating I feel like doing at the time.
1: Wow. Now I would like you to share with us the story of your greatest or one of your greatest, most significant success as a result of the right customer focus or something that you did right about approaching your customers.
0: Sure. Well, I'm going to share two, but I'll try to make them quick.
1: No, share two and take your time.
0: Okay. Okay. They're both very meaningful turning points in my career from my point of view. And the first one, I told you in my origin story how my parents always encouraged me to make art. That's right. And we're always supportive of that. And they've been a huge part of my artist journey. My first studio is at their house. Hmm. And now I'm in New York with my own studio that's separate. They're just, they're freaking amazing. And I can't say enough good things about them. <laughs>
2: when
0: I first started painting, and I was painting pictures of Steve Jobs for tech companies. Specifically, tech companies that my parents had never heard of. <laughs> they were all, you know, they were happy for me that I was painting and I was doing something that I loved. But they didn't know the tech company or they didn't know the tech icon that I was painting or anything like that. And so their excitement was just for me and my happiness. Hmm. But I think this turning point for me is I painted a pretty famous comedian named Howie Mandel. Okay. On America's Got Talent. And he's got a pretty uh, pretty deep resume. A lot of people know who Howie Mandel is, including my parents. Oh. He was famous even when they were growing up, or at least when they were, I don't know, as old as I am now. <laughs> so, so, like, they really knew who he was. And so I did this painting for Howie. And, and not only... I
1: did it for him.
0: It was for him, but I also got to go and paint it. I actually did it live at his studio in, in Los Angeles. And then he and I recorded this video together. And I told him about how, when I first told my parents, Hey, guess who I'm painting next? And they're like, who? And I said, Howie Mandel, they were just like, so excited and so proud. (laughs) Like even right then they were calling and texting their friends saying, Oh, Blake's going to (laughs) paint Mandel, And he's going down to Los Angeles this weekend to do it. And so, like I told, I shared that moment with him, and then he said, "Okay, let's just record another little video for them." And so we turned the camera on, and he gave this very kind of heartfelt uh, speech or like video to them, saying, "Hey, Rebecca and Patrick, I'm here with Blake. He told me about how when I when he told you that he was going to paint me, that you guys got excited. So I just want to tell you, I'm really proud of him for." you know, following his passion and following his art because there's nothing more important than that. So being able to send that to my parents, I mean, even like talking about it right now, I'm like kind of choking (laughs) up and tearing up. It was just, it was really, really meaningful to me um, in a way that that most other things were not. Uh, (laughs) So, so.
1: I I can totally get it. I mean, uh, I can totally get it because, you know, as parents, as ones that always wanted you to do whatever you are happy with, and suddenly you are connected Mm -hmm. deep to their world. Yeah. So they can really understand what you are doing. Yeah. Hmm.
0: And then the second one, I guess for me, like the defining moment was when I left that studio in California that was at their house and moved to New York City, which was just over a year ago now, I was super afraid that... I was going to become the typical starving artist and that I wasn't going to be able to afford the studio I wanted and my career was just going to slowly die. And for whatever good karma or good luck that I had kind of shining down on me, I was able to find an amazing studio at a price. It wasn't in my budget at the time, but I made it work and kind of saw the success out really like branching out on my own. That was like a really pivotal time where where I'm like, okay, this isn't just something that I'm doing out of a studio at my parents' house at the age of 30. Mm. Now, at that point, I was 34, living in one of the most expensive cities in the country with not only an apartment, but also my own art studio and kind of had this like make or break mentality of like, I have to make this work. And I feel like I've been here a year, I just re-signed my leases. So so like transition of feeling like I'm actually <laughs> starting to make it work. Obviously, I still have a long way to go, but that was huge.
1: Wow, and you still have perhaps a long way to go, but you you did some pretty important yeah, journey definitely. until now. It sounds terrific, and this point that you suddenly feel that you are on your own and, and doing well, very well. I think uh, you have so many reasons to be proud of yourselves, and I think all of us are yeah. looking forward to these moments to come. So it's beautiful. The Challenge of Entrepreneurial Marketing According to entrepreneurs whose business failed, the number one reason for their failure, 42%, is not finding the market need. There are two reasons for not finding the market need. Either you didn't focus on the right customers, or your product definition wasn't correct. Once you decide on your big idea, you need to attract the customers that will buy your product or service and drive sales. That's marketing. In order to do so, there are two stages. First, you need to locate the right customers. And second, you should define your product or service in such a way that those potential customers will understand how it solves their problem. The second secret, locating the right customers. While seeking potential customers, the first stage, you should search the market to find where is the biggest market opportunity for your product or service, and who are the customers that need it most. Among them, you should find those that are currently most concerned about the problem your product or service solves, who are those that are actively looking for a solution to their problem, and who are ready for it. John Lee Dumas, JLD, the host of Entrepreneurs on Fire and Podcasters Paradise, just to mention the first two, focused from the first day of his entrepreneurship on the right target audience, his avatar, meaning ideal client. I've been waiting for this guest, and I'm so excited to have here with me today, John Lee Domas. John is the host of EO Fire, an award-winning podcast where he interviews today's most successful entrepreneurs seven days a week. JLD has grown EO Fire into a multi-million dollar a year business with over 1,500 interviews and 1.5 million monthly listens. He's the author of the Freedom Journal and the Mastery Journal, two of the most funded publishing campaigns of all time on Kickstarter. And all the magic happens at eofire.com. Hey, John.
2: I'm fired up to be here with you, Heyute. Let's
1: do this. Let's do it. And let's dive on right to the first question I want to ask you. And I wanted to ask you for your best advice about approaching the customers. What are your concepts or beliefs on the way a startup or entrepreneurial business should approach its customers? And give your best advice for their or our listeners' customer approach.
2: Okay, I feel like for a customer approach, number one, you need to know who your perfect customer is, that ideal customer, that avatar. And once you know who that person is, you can then start creating free, valuable, and consistent content for that person. Once you create that free value and consistent content for that person, you want to make sure you're getting it in front of them. So you need to find them and make sure that you're putting that content in front of them. And, of course, they'll be attracted to that content because, again, you're creating it for them specifically. And then once you have the opportunity to get in front of them, meaning asking them a question, sending them an email newsletter or a social media message, you have to ask the question. What are you struggling with? And so then you can start to understand your customers, your ideal customers, what their pain points, obstacles, challenges, and struggles are so that you, the person that, by the way, has been delivering free, valuable, and consistent content, um, you can provide the solution in the form of a product, a service, or a community. So. If you go about it in the right way, you're not just somebody pitching them something. No, you're somebody that's already provided them value, who they are growing to know, like, and trust, who asked them what they're struggling with, who listened to them as they shared their pain points, and then who now is saying, hey, you told me that you're struggling with this. Here's the solution. I would love to offer it to you. Here it is. That's the best way to approach customers.
1: Wow. And you've been with customers for Quite a while, a few years already, and I know you had a lot of successes and we'll get to that, but what is your biggest, most critical failure with customers, the one that affected your entrepreneurial journey the most? Can you tell us about this?
2: This was a large mistake that I've made that I have not replicated since because it was a big waste of time, energy, effort, and money. Um, It goes back to 2013 when I had a lot of people saying, John, um, I love your podcast. Like I'd love to create my own podcast in my own industry or niche and me saying, well, what should I do? Um, hmm, How would I create an entire platform that I will create other people's podcasts for them? I'll host their shows. I'll edit their podcasts. I'll create their show notes. I'll do it all you know, for just a couple hundred bucks a month. And I thought that it was going to be a no-brainer. In fact, I called it Pod Platform. And everybody that I, I ran the idea by were like, John, that's a great idea. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. And I went out, hired the virtual assistants, built a team, you know, got the hosting ready, and everything was prepped. And then I launched, and only one person signed up for the service. Wow. And luckily it was the perfect number because – and I say that because um, if I had zero people that signed up, I might have tried to relaunch and, and done it again. Or if I had 100 people sign up, I would have been really obligated to those 100 people because a lot of people would have put their trust in me. Fortunately, again, in hindsight, only one person signed up, which quickly led me to realize that, wow, I don't want to be in this business because I don't want to be editing people's shows and uploading their intros and outros and hosting it for them and doing all the things that it takes to essentially run a podcast but running somebody else's podcast. And I was then able to go back to just the one person and say, listen, I'm sorry, um, here's here's your money back. This is just not the type of business that I want to run. So instead of you know, having to either um, go to 100 people or think – or, or not even know that I didn't want to run that business because zero people signed up. Fortunately, one person signed up and showed me this is not what I want to do. But I wasted so much time, so much energy, so much money finding that out when I f- could have said, "Hey, everybody's telling me they want this." Before I actually go out and create this and and hire people and train and all this. Let's actually have people put their money where their mouth is and invest in this product before it exists. And I did that a few months later with Podcasters Paradise, and that concept really caught on. I had 50 people sign up before we launched, which made me realize that, wow, I can really turn this into something. You know, And now fast forward to today, Podcasters Paradise has over 3,000 members, over $4 million in revenue, all because I went about it in a different way.
1: You should read because I enjoy Podcast of Paradise so much. It's such a tool. Of course. (laughs) Everything you teach me, I use. And I just wanted to ask you, how long did you wait to see how many people are going to join you?
2: I did the whole launch, you know. So it was like a week launch, and I opened the, the cart and I, you know, pushed it hard and went throughout the week, and then I closed the cart. And, you know, so it was like a whole launch sequence that I kind of went through. And when just the one person signed up, I said, you know what? this just isn't something that seems to be catching on. And then when I started doing the work, I was like, and this is not work that I wanna be doing. So that made me realize I needed to pivot fast.
1: Knowing to shut down something, knowing that something doesn't succeed, it's really a gift as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. The third
1: secret, defining your product or service. Once you find your customers, You should define your product so that they will understand it solves their problem. After that, you should start using sets of activities aimed to creating awareness and attracting the customers to you. Angela Myers has the most amazing story about how she figured out what her product and service is. Angela managed to define what she does most accurately. Angela Myers has been listed as one of IBM's top 20 global influencers, named by Forbes as one of the top five education leaders to watch in 2017 and 2018, and is among Huffington Post's top 100 social media influencers. Angela founded the global movement Choose to Matter in 2014, the nonprofit organization grew out of the impassioned response to a TED talk she gave on the power of two simple words that went viral You Matter. She is an author of nine books, including the highly acclaimed Genius Matters and Classroom Habitudes. Futurist, innovator, educator, entrepreneur, change maker. Angela Meyer is on a mission to disrupt the status quo and to empower every individual to change their own world, if not the world around them, for the better. It is fair to say she leaves no room unchanged. Please join me in welcoming Angela Myers. Angela Myers, what
3: a pleasure to have you here. Hey! Hi, the pleasure is mine. Welcome, welcome from Denver, Colorado. So, (laughs) I'm so honored to be here.
1: I am honored to have you here and I'm so happy you are here. What was the journey? How did it come to what you're doing today and what are you doing today?
3: Because I loved learning since as long as I can remember. I was really good at it and very passionate about everything that I could get my hands on that had to do with how we learn, how the brain learns. So I actually went into neuroscience in medical school and putting myself through medical school, my entrepreneurial side, I worked four jobs to put myself through university. And all of those jobs had something to do with um, special communities and special needs students. From severe and profound autistic to emotionally disturbed to working with neonatos um, that were addicted to drugs and their mothers trying to get them back on a pathway of purpose. Um, It's what made me feel alive. And it's what taught me what true passion was. That, as I said before, it's not what you're good at, because I was good at school. And it's not what I love to do, which is learning. And I loved learning about the brain, every single part of neuroscience I love, but it wasn't what I was meant to do. And Hmm. it is through as an entrepreneur that led me to becoming an educator. And so I quit medical school and I went back to college and I became a teacher and no one that I knew supported me because at the time- That I was going to school, it was, and it still is, a really big deal to be in medical school and a really big deal to be the first woman in my family to go to college, the first woman in my family to pursue a pathway of medicine, and there's prestige in that not as much prestige, unfortunately, in being a teacher. So when I went back home and announced to everybody that I found my passion and that I found my calling and I'm going to quit medical school and be a teacher, um, (laughs) it was met with a lot of resistance. And I think that's where you know that it's true passion because no matter what, no matter how much resistance and no matter how much uh, challenge, the act of not educating, the act of not being a teacher Was akin to not breathing. (laughs) So that's how I define passion when you must do something, and the thought of not doing it is like the thought of not breathing.
1: And I guess you see yourself as a teacher today as well. However,
3: how did you make the
1: shift from being a teacher literally to educate people who are not uh, just sitting in class and uh, having exams?
3: So I think there is a lot of training going on and very little teaching. And because I understand learning and how to move structures, to move forward learning independently and collectively is a really rare skill set. And so I think that whether it's the lens of marketing or it's the lens of entrepreneurship or the lens of innovation, when you understand that learning is at the core of that and how to facilitate that, then I think I've, I've always thought that whether you're marketing or you're selling or you're, you're pitching something, you're really educating. <laughs> you're educating your community, yeah, you're educating investors, you're educating. So there isn't an aspect of what I do that's not education. It's funny because I am probably categorized most as an inspirational, motivational speaker, which I find funny because I have no desire really to inspire or motivate people. (laughs) But I have great What do you mean? Yeah, great great aspiration to help them discover what motivates themselves from the inside out to activate action. Some because I think that's where the most inspiring stuff happens when people discover what they're truly capable of no to help lead that out
1: and that's exactly what i wanted to ask how do you see actually your mission today i mean when you're going through these companies or when you're speaking on stage what is the main purpose are you talking about really inspiring people are you talking about helping them to find their passion
3: I think my main purpose is setting an expectation of action and an expectation of impact. So a lot of times when people come to hear a speaker, they expect to be entertained and they expect to be um, inspired. inspired. That's a very yeah. passive state. And so the key to learning Love it. is shifting the responsibility to the learner. It's not my job to entertain. It's not my job to inspire. It is my job, however, to create the conditions for which they seek responsibility to do something after what they've heard. So I I demand participation and demand an expectation that they will do something. Um, And it takes a lot of conversation with the organizers, because I'm not there to just do a song and dance. I have an expectation that they will do at least one thing differently afterwards. And so I I always say that, you know, my job isn't to try to convince them to believe me. My job is to convince them to believe in themselves. Sure. And, and then that's the most inspiring thing. And you can feel it in the air when the audience turns into that when it's being about me and it starts being about them and I see them reflect and I see them react and I see them excited and right during or after the speech they're tweeting what they did and tweeting what they're going to do and they're putting their goals public and it's the most inspiring thing so I'm the one who actually leaves inspired (laughs) and leaves (laughs) yeah and part of it is getting used to being uncomfortable on stage. Like I put them in a state of dissonance and I put myself out there too because I won't ask them to do something that I don't demand of myself. And we just do it together. It's hard to explain. It's a journey. It's this journey that we take together. Even though it's an hour, it really is a journey. Who are your customers today? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I did a TED talk five years ago. And before the TED talk, I had a massive amount of content. I had eight books at that time. And I had 4,000 blog posts. I was contributing to four different leadership innovation blogs. And I was writing about very topic specific things neuroscience, the anatomy of the web, the anatomy of the social transformation of the web, digital citizenship, digital impact. Um, all of these things. And so I was getting requests for content. And so that was really specific. So a lot of social media, a lot of personal branding, a lot of what I have this term that I made up (laughs) called the habitudes. Hmm. It's um, a combination of habits plus attitudes that are demanded in any context, in any field. Habitudes, it's habit plus attitude. And then I did this TED Talk where I'm trying to, you get seven. So the format of TED is you get 17 minutes to tell the world how you're going to change the world. Yeah. And I had this beautiful talk about social media all ready to go. And at the morning, the night before the talk, I watched all of these, my favorite, like top six TED talks, and they're all like profound people. Um, and I, I started doubting myself. I, I started thinking, like, mm. who am I? Like, I can't do this. I was going bow out. Like, oh. I don't have anything worthy to say. And I thought, you know what? That is the problem with the world. The reason we don't contribute our fullest, fiercest genius to the world is because we don't think mm. we're enough. We don't think we matter. So the name of my talk was You Matter. And the simple thesis was, if people understood how much they mattered, how much they were needed, how much they were counted on, everything in the world changes. And so that's what it is, how these two simple words have changed the world. And watching it mm. literally turn into a movement where the message of mattering has been shared. I think our last analysis was 15 million times.
1: Wow.
3: The talks shared hundreds of thousands of times. And the message of mattering is now a core part of 68,000 classrooms with almost a million kids using their genius to change the world. Hmm. And it all is because they believe in matter. That has become my most requested topic. And it is not only interesting to watch that happen where I'm not requested anymore to talk about this content, to talk about. My research and science and learning and skills and social and all those things that I have researched for 25 years. But now it doesn't matter what company I can. So, in the last four weeks, I've been with banking institutions, I've been with real estate executives, I've been with hospital boards, I've been with school board leaders, I've been with children, and I've been with teachers and everything in between. And the single request was, Please let us know that we matter.
1: <laughs> wow.
3: Very telling place that we are in the world.
1: First of all, we'll put link to the TED Talk oh. on the show notes of this interview. And I'm sure it will help many people to feel they matter. And I just want, yeah. uh, before I ask you for your advice to entrepreneurs, I want to ask you, when did you start to be an entrepreneur? Or do you see yourself an entrepreneur since you started teaching or did you make some shift like actually I did? Yeah. When did it happen?
3: Well, I think I have been that in my core since I began in the real world at university, even putting myself through college in very unique ways. But I didn't have a name for it back then, 30 some years ago entrepreneurialism was not really about concept, but that's where the habitudes come in this mindset. And so when I went into education, they are not of what I would call the innovator or entrepreneurial mindset. Mm -hmm. They're what I call the employee mindset. And it's not bad. It's just different. And an employee mindset is where I come in, I clock in, I clock out, I get credit for when I'm there. My success is built on this hierarchy of pretty predictable things. And government agencies and HR and education recruit very carefully for that employee mindset. You don't want really, you know, groundbreakers, innovative thinkers, dreamers, because they don't fit that nine to five. That's right. So even though my work with students is you know, fueled my soul. I never really thought I fit. There's just something about the way I thought the way I saw the world, the way that I wanted to be, um, never really fit in education or really my whole life. I can go back to even high school. I just felt different. Hmm. Um, I always dreamed audaciously. I've always seen my, my mission to make an impact, to do things that were never done before. And there was really no affiliation with anybody that wouldn't think you were crazy. And so when I got to the web, when I started social, I started my blog and I started connecting and reading people like Seth Godin and um, just Gary Vandercheck Mm -hmm. and all these, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not crazy. I'm an entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) And how many years ago was it? 14. Wow. 14 years. Wow.
1: Yeah. And I want to ask you, yep. what would be, you know, this podcast is all about seeing things or looking at things from the point of view of your customers and serving, as you say, but mainly, first of all, to listen and be entrepreneur. Once you decided to be entrepreneur, you also decided to be a business or a business person. And in you know, order to be a business person, you have to listen to your customers. And I want to ask you, from your entrepreneurship, and perhaps your entrepreneurship really started at high school. It's totally yes. fine. I want to ask you, what would be your best advice to any entrepreneur that listen to us right now?
3: Oh, my gosh. That is that is a great question. <laughs> and I think a hard question that is really loaded Is how do you wish to matter? Or another way to put it is how will you add value? Because mattering isn't all about just you wanting to feel worthwhile. The way we get to the deepest level of worthiness is understanding not only that we are essential, but how we can be essential. And that's our deepest fulfillment, knowing that we fill a need for someone. Seth Godin calls it art. Like how will you contribute hmm. your art? And I think that's the difference between running a business and being an entrepreneur. Running a business is selling art. Being an entrepreneur is being art, hmm. working on art and contributing your art fully and fiercely to the world. And so it, it is a way of life, not necessarily a vocation. And so it doesn't mean that if you run a business that you're not passionate. But it is really different. It is not so much about product. It is about the intersection of passion and your purpose. And our purpose is to make an impact. So what would be the advice? How would you put it as an advice? That is a really incredible question. It is, I think it goes back to the value question what is your unique value proposition, which is a combination of what is your genius and how will you sharing it be valuable to other people? Because value isn't a price thing. It isn't a money thing. It is a worthiness thing. And how are you living up to your full value, but also providing value for other people? And finding that balance,
1: I love it. And I always call it, what are you one of a kind of, and how will you share it with others? But one of the kind, I think that for each of us, there is one or two things that they are one of a kind. And each of us should find their one of a kind path. That's
3: exactly right. Exactly right. You're one thing. Yeah.
1: So, that's for now. Today, we reached 200 episodes. Thank you for being with me. All this way, it's all about you. From these 200 episodes, we learned how the right marketing is what enables entrepreneurs to win. We are going towards the next 100 episodes with a new title, Reach or Miss Entrepreneurial Marketing Success. That's where the magic happens. Bye-bye. And for you, our listeners, until the next time, it all goes down to this. You either reach or miss. Keep reaching your goals and vision. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to The Reach or Miss Show, the podcast for the customer-focused entrepreneur. You can find all the information, links, and resources that was mentioned at the show in our website reachormiss.com. See you next week.